0: 3CR. Here to stay.
1: Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation, and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison.
0: Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out doing time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere, every Monday at 4pm on your Community Radio 3CR. Hello and welcome to the Do and Time show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855am on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. And today is a very special broadcast. I'd like to welcome listeners to International Women's Day. And it's the 8th of March, 2021. It's approximately 4.01. And we'll be taking you through to quite a few very, very special interviews today and basically the theme for International Women's Day is leadership. And first up on the show, we're going to be interviewing Professor Bronwyn Carlson, who is the head of the Department of Indigenous Studies at Macquarie University. Bronwyn is an Aboriginal scholar who was born and lives on Dararal Country and in Wollongong. She has worked in both the Aboriginal community-controlled health sector and higher education. So for many years, the Do in Time show has focused much of its media squarely on building the movement to stop Aboriginal deaths in custody. Specifically, we will be interviewing on the topic of Indigenous femicide with Bromwyn, which is a term used in the case study to underline that the incidence of Indigenous women's deaths in these disparate places is not accidental or random, but a systematic outcome of the logic of settler colonialism. And we're going to be speaking today, in general, about deaths in custody. Um, after this, we'll be speaking with Belinda Belinda Day, and Belinda Day is the daughter of Auntie Tanya Day, who died a brutal death in custody, and and she's from um, Victoria, and we'll be speaking with Belinda about that. And then after that, we will be speaking with Tabitha Lynn from South Australia, and we'll speak with her generally about domestic violence and also the prison system, and she'll be speaking about her lived experience of prison and about addressing the root causes of violence against women. Hello Bronwyn, welcome to the program.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me on.
0: I think I've set myself a mammoth task this morning, this afternoon. You definitely mother.
2: have. Those are some um, huge topics to discuss.
0: Now Broman before we start though, would you like to just correct, if it needs correcting, the pronunciation of the land you're on and while you're at it, just give a little bit of introduction um, of, of where you're from.
2: Yeah, so I'm actually um, speaking to you today from Darrell Country, which is, and specifically I'm in Wollongong um, in New South Wales, and um, so I work on Darrell Country at Macquarie University, and for the last few years I've been, um, you know, involved in various projects that look at Indigenous peoples' engagement on social media, and one of the interesting things about that is. In- social media provides a place where Indigenous people can actually challenge the silence around
1: um,
2: the deaths of Indigenous people, Indigenous women specifically. So it's a place where communities can come and um, let each other know what's happening because mainstream media largely ignores um, the deaths of Indigenous people more broadly. And so social media has been um, a place where we're afforded the opportunity to share that knowledge with each other and also to mourn, and to um, rage about it and to discuss it and to try in some ways to support each other as best we can in those forums.
0: Absolutely. And how do you see International Women's Day? Do you think that Aboriginal women are included on the day? Well,
2: like, this is really interesting. So, you know, raging across social media in the last 24 hours have been discussions around Q&A, ABC poll Q&A, um, who had a panel titled All About Women, and there were no Indigenous women on that panel. Thank and so you. when we're talking about the issues that are really important to Indigenous people, and one of those is definitely femicide, and the deaths of our um, women, young people, men in, in, um, in and out of custody across Australia, that is largely excluded from you know public vigils, outrage, um, media attention. So to have a panel titled All About Women, but excluding Indigenous women,
0: is actually outrageous. It is outrageous. And in fact, didn't one of the Liberal MPs say that we have a fabulous criminal justice system in Australia?
2: Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. I'm always horrified by the criminal justice system and I really appreciate the work that Hannah McLeod and others do in that space. Issues to our attention, but I remember um, a few years ago watching that film by John Pilcher, is it? Um, Utopia? Yep. And in there, they were talking about, of course, the brutal and untimely death of Mr. Ward in the back of a corrective service van. And they interviewed the then Minister for Corrective Services, and she spoke about the way in which they rat and stack Indigenous people into uh being incarcerated and how they were building prisons particularly in western australia um to be able to do that to rack and stack indigenous bodies into these places and the lack of care or concern about that in this woman's interview just was astounding and it's always kind of stuck with me and when she was questioned about um the brutal death of mr Ward and her responsibility as the minister um, she went on to say that she made her staff endure social, um, cultural awareness training as a response to the death of a human under, her, under her watch. And, that and was that's it. all, right? That was
0: it, yeah. So nothing about mourning, nothing about protocols or looking at systemic racism, nothing like that? And,
2: and some empathy for that family and community. And so it always... The most shocking thing about all this and the silence that we get in the media around deaths of Indigenous people, and I know you're talking to Ms Gay's family, um, and the lack of care and empathy across the nation for the deaths of Indigenous people, and particularly women, given this is international women's day, is is outstanding to me that there is not empathy for Indigenous people. And of course, this has a big history. It it goes back to colonisation. These things are... There's a linkage here that you can see, and it's quite visible, that there is no outrage when the bodies of Indigenous people are found in the streets or in our prisons um, and die in horrific ways. There's no outrage, and and that's astounding.
0: Absolutely, and I I found, actually, Q&A very, very difficult to swallow, if you want the truth, because it just made me think, and and actually I'm glad you mentioned Q&A today, Because it it just got me to thinking about the the dishonourable manner in which our criminal justice system or injustice system and the government views women that have died, in particular Aboriginal women, as invisible.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Look, this government is just shameful. And we've seen that in recent days with the um, historical rape case, sexual um, violence allegations leveled against ministers and the way in which our government has rallied around to support the perpetrators as opposed to the actual victims, And the actual death of a woman in this case, um, in, in that case um, that has just come out recently who actually suicided because of that, was treated so poorly. So that tells us how women are treated in general. Indigenous women, there's this whole other level where that silence is so dramatic That, you know, I even talk to people in the everyday who have no clue about some of the ways in which Indigenous people and women have died in prison for, you know, unpaid fines or, um, you know, having one too many on your way home. Um, These are the kinds of things that have led to death sentences for women. And, you know, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Social Justice Commissioner, June Oscar, a couple of years ago, described the imprisonment rates for Indigenous women as a national disgrace She's come out and said, like, come on, Indigenous people make up such a small percentage, but make up such a huge amount of the
0: population in prison. And those numbers continue to grow. Indeed, they do. And one of the things, Bronwyn, is looking at perhaps um, not so much making a distinction, but, but talking about the spaces in which women pass away. So you've got, you know, Arnie Tanya Day, who died in police custody, for example. You've got Miss Dew who died in custody in Western Australia and Tanya in Victoria then you've got um, and we you and I talked about this the case study that's on the deathscapes website um, last last year I believe um, where we we did a roll call didn't we Broman during our interview yeah. about all the women that had been either murdered or had died on in the street in the river at home so it isn't just prison where where women die. And and it's everywhere. It's in many of our institutions,
2: but most certainly in the streets and in homes. And the lack of care for Indigenous women who try to seek help, is it's heartbreaking. You know, we saw um, cases where women would call um, police or call other um, forms of support and, you know, either face rejection or face actually violence from those that they seek help from. Um, you know, so what is it that indigenous women do when they're in a, um in need in um to seek help? You know, the, the it's limited um what people can do and people are fearful of calling authorities because of what could happen.
0: Absolutely. And and so this is interesting that we're we're building on looking at all institutions and all spaces, and that's why I've chosen Three of you today to be to be interviewed about about that, what about your passion in terms of um, your own projects what, what do you think would be one of the the, the best things that you or stre- one of your strengths that you've contributed I'm sure there are many
2: well you know we it's ongoing work like these things are not. Um, something that you can feel like That's you've right. had, had some input into and in that there is some great resolution. And so I was really proud to be part of the Death project. Um, I was invited in by um, Joseph Puglasey and Sue Rodrini-Perrara to um, be part of the Death particularly the Femicide Project, where I spoke about, um, you know, that historical link in the way in which Indigenous women have been treated. And, you know, we There's just like untold evidence in the archive that speaks to the way in which people revere the crimes against Indigenous women. You know, they, they talk quite freely about raping Indigenous women, um, the murder of Indigenous women, and, pe- and Indigenous men and, um, you know, um, non-binary um, people as well, but given we're just talking about women today. Um, I also want to note that the high levels of violence against trans women is outrageous. Indigenous trans women um, face some of the most horrific crimes against them as well. So this, this has this massive link to um, colonialism, which can't be just dismissed, because that link is there. It's this logic that's in place that sees the, the systemic and systematic violence perpetrated against Indigenous women as being something that is almost normalized. And that's why you see a lack of rage from the community. Because if you see one non-Indigenous woman who is brutally killed, and this happens regularly, like I turn on the news some days and I think, I am literally just watching story after story about violence against women. We have a major problem. So let alone Indigenous women, there's this other layer because there's this lack of giving a care about Indigenous women. So we don't see that on the news so much. You don't see the deaths and the horrific nature of the way in which some women die. Exactly. Um, you know, yeah, and so I guess some of the work that I do, I, I get to look at Indigenous people worldwide and our engagements with social media. And so, you know, I, um, you know I've published with people who've spoken about missing and murdered women across the globe and using um, various hashtags. And I guess that's often just pointed to Canada and the yeah. way in which those horrific numbers of Indigenous women who are murdered and missing and girls, young girls.
0: It Absolutely. happens here too. It's crazy, Broman It's it's yeah. a horrible thing. And um, sorry, I I, <laughs> I use that word crazy. I've got a bit of a, a bit of a black, dark sense of humour. Um, but it's. I think what we need to do now, Broman is is try to get that work happening. Um, having Belinda Stevens up next, or Belinda Day, I should say. Yeah. But in the meantime, are you able to just give us the details of the Deathscapes website? And I'll have you back on soon. To talk yeah about so in
2: absolutely detail. people need to go on to guestscapes org um, and then with, on the homepage you will see a link to look at the semicide um, case studies but I urge you to look at the entire project so it's looking at it's an international focus as well um, including obviously Australia but it's looking at the the sort of unlawful deaths, the the killings of Indigenous um, people in general, and then moving into um, the site there that's looking at um, femicide and Indigenous people. And I should say that this project was inspired by the really tireless work of Indigenous people in the community, and really including the late Uncle Ray Jackson, who said in regard to Indigenous death and custody particularly, that um, he prefers to call them murder by neglect because that's exactly what it is. And then if we think about the ways in which Indigenous people are dying in custody, and so I think in recent times, just in the recent couple of decades, there's been over 400 deaths of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in police custody. That's outrageous numbers. It is outrageous. Absolutely. And for Indigenous women, they are less likely to receive any appropriate medical care um, prior to their deaths compared with other prisoners in there. And authorities are less likely to follow up on their own procedures in cases where an Indigenous woman has died in custody.
0: Absolutely,
2: there's no care.
0: There's no care. We need
2: to be outraged. So
0: we definitely go onto that
2: site. Go onto that site. Read those stories, and you know, it's for me. I challenge anyone to not feel. That pain when they read those stories for those families, and one of the great um, outcomes of this project, apart from the you know sharing of this public knowledge and giving voice and name to people who are killed, um, there's going to be a, a book coming soon led by Joseph, and um, it's a, it's called um, Mapping Deathscape, Digital Geographies of Racial and Border Violence. And there's a number of contributors, all the people who are involved in the Desgate project.
0: We'll have to get on it. many that.
2: Aboriginal. I, and, I could yeah, sit with you all day and listen,
0: Bronwyn. It's you know, I really um, would like to do another interview very soon, but we better get on to Belinda. So lovely to have okay. you. Okay. Thanks so much. Um, and thanks so much for that. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye. Bye bye. And that was Professor Bronwyn Carlson, who's doing a lot of um, leadership work in regards to. Indigenous Femicide. So it's up
2: to us, the people. We need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we
0: can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up, they still kill our people, they still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace, a treaty means equality and a treaty means justice, thank you. you 're back with the and time show and we 're going to be speaking very shortly now with Belinda, who is the daughter of Auntie Tanya Day, who died a brutal death in custody in the police cells and auntie Tanya was was a, a, eventually transported to the Bendigo hospital and airlifted to St vincent 's hospital um where where she eventually died and it's international women 's day this show is I'm not going to say celebrate. I mean, I, yeah, I suppose it is good to celebrate International Women's Day, but there are also some very challenging things that we need to look at as well that are not always happy things. Um, hello, Belinda. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Would you say that that's a fair enough thing that I've said about International Women's Day? Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, it is good to celebrate, but, you know, we just take time to remember those before us and,
0: Yeah. Now I'm wondering if you could just tell us what what land you're from. This is really just about having a, a conversation a, about your your mum and honouring her.
1: Yeah, so I'm proud Yorta Yorta woman. Um, uh, born in Yirrkuk, raised in Yirrkuk, and spent some time in Melbourne and um, in some different places, and, and circled back home similar to, to mum's journey. She was, um, you know, a proud Yorta Yorta woman and. Spent a lot of time travelling but eventually circled back to her homelands of Ichuka, and um, that's where she was living when the unfortunate um, circumstances unfolded.
0: Absolutely. And I believe that your mum's anniversary was on the 22nd of December last year. and She died in 2017, didn't she? Yeah, that's right. Yes. So the things that I'm going to be concentrating on today is really looking at Aboriginal women that have been impacted by the criminal justice system. And the criminal justice system doesn't just mean the prisons, does it? It's also the courts and deaths in custody and and, um, quite a few issues here. And I'm wondering if you wanted to just say a few words to us today, Belinda, just about your mum, about um, what happened and maybe talk about the public drunkenness. Because I'm sure that there are listeners... Who've, who've tuned in, who don't really even probably even know anything about it? Yeah,
1: well, I guess we've we tried our best to, to make sure mum's story was, was told. But um, back in 2017, so the 5th of December, mum um, was travelling on a, a V-line um, bus um, initially from Ichuka to Bendigo, where she then subsequently jumped on a train. Um, she had fallen asleep um, on that train and a conductor after probably spending about 15 seconds um, with her, um, decided that she was an unruly passenger and um, spoke to the train driver and had the police called. So they allowed mum to, to travel from Bendigo to Castle, Maine, where they were greeted by um, police officers. At one stage, four police officers attended um, and had mum surrounded on the platform. So they removed her from the train, had her on the platform, had four male officers surrounding her while she was trying to find some identification and explained that, you know, she was just trying to continue her journey on to Melbourne. Um, once they took her off the train, she was actually put into custody, transported from Main train station back to um, Main police station where she was lodged in the cell. Um, so what subsequently happened from there, so once she was actually lodged in the cell, um, the adequate checks weren't um, carried out and not long after mum was put in the cell, she, she had numerous falls, but there was a significant fall. And we fought through the, the coronial process and the inquest to, to have that footage released to show people, um, you know, the fall that, that mum had encountered and, and the subsequent um, deterioration of mum's health and well-being from that point. So from the time that she had her fall, um, no one entered the cell um, for close to four hours um, and by the time they had entered the cell um, they called the ambulance um, and mum was eventually transported to Bendigo Hospital where she was um, pretty much unconscious. So by the time the family we arrived in Bendigo um, to see mum and I guess the most disturbing thing is that the conversations that we had with Victoria Police um, and those at Castlemaine Station was that you know mum Mum was well and that she'd been, she'd been transported to the hospital but We had no idea and and no inclination that she had had a severe fall and had a massive bruise on her head. Um, And she was actually unconscious with tubes and everything when we walked in, which we weren't expecting because the the police had basically said that she'd just been transported just to to be assessed. Um, Unfortunately, from that point, mum was airlifted to St Vincent's. Um, And then, you know, so that was on the 5th of December. And then on the 22nd of December, um, mum passed from her injuries. So a very long and painful process for us as a family to go through. Um, And I guess we've we've tried to tell mum's story because we want to make change. And, you know, in the year 2017 and now, you know, 2021, this should not be happening to to anybody. Um, And we know that Aboriginal people um, are targeted um, through the, the law of public intoxication and that's why we've been fighting so hard to have that law abolished and, you know, just recently we've been able to get that through the lower and upper house of um, Victoria Parliament and, you know, it's it's passed and, it, and it's going to change but we still need to wait 18 months for that to come into effect.
0: Thank you so much for letting us know about that, Belinda. The other thing too is that really you and your family have done some amazing leadership work in regards to... Uh, really including systemic racism in the inquest and in the investigation. And I know that was a landmark inquest. I attended quite a lot of that. And I felt really privileged to be a part of that because it was so important, wasn't it? Absolutely. I
1: mean, it's clear to us and from the findings from Coroner English that, um, you know, and we're thankful that we had a coroner that was, willing to open her eyes and to allow that to, to be part of the, the process and um, even through her findings she found that the, the conductor had been um, influenced by, by his bias um, and had treated mum differently because she was an Aboriginal woman and you know to have that written in the findings and to make sure that we can sort of look at that and and make sure that these organisations Um, can reflect and hopefully make change so that people can acknowledge that there is that bias but, you know, put in, I guess, policies and procedures and certainly training um, for, for, for people to be able to deal with Aboriginal people in the appropriate ways.
0: Absolutely. And even in regards to the Royal Commission and to Aboriginal deaths in custody, and there really hasn't... Those recommendations certainly were not implemented, were they, in regards to your mum...
1: Absolutely not, no. And, you know, certainly other jurisdictions, when we talk about the, the removal or the abolishment of um, the public intoxication law, that was something that other states and territories did take up, but Victoria um, very much lagged behind in regard to that. And, you know, we're proud as a family to have been able to advocate and, and continue the fight that, that many, many before us um, had tried to, to have that abolished. And it's really good to, to sort of you know, take a moment and reflect to to know that that has now um, been abolished. And, you know, we hold with it, you know, we've got bated breath and we wait for the 18 months to make sure that the public health response model um, is going to be effective and and really look after the needs of um, people that are are found drunk in a public place.
0: Absolutely. And you probably can't talk about this too much, but I'm hoping the police get prosecuted.
1: Yes. Unfortunately, the... The DPP has decided not to proceed with charges. Um, so that has been um, advised know. to the family and yeah. I think that is public knowledge and we're devastated by that because we believe that there was enough evidence to show that there was, um, that I guess they hadn't followed their, their duty of care and followed their own policies and procedures and that um, that could have been taken up in a criminal manner. But um, the DPP has decided that, that um, not um I guess, a course of action that they're going to
0: pursue. Yeah, well, we'll have to work on that, I suppose. At this stage, that's what's happened. And it really is indicative, isn't it, of the ongoing genocide and colonisation of Aboriginal people?
1: Absolutely. And, you know, you were talking about the systemic racism and these systems are so used to being able to, um, to do what they do and what they've been doing for so many years and there's been no consequence. So... Um, You know, for us, we we continue to fight for justice for our mum and, you know, we just hope that one day that we can see that justice in that criminal manner because um, the way that mum was treated and her undignified death is, you know, is something that needs um, to be looked at.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, we've got to go on and interview Tabitha soon who's going to speak about her lived experience of prison. But before we do that, you know... Why was your mum taken off the train? Why was she lodged in a cell? And why wasn't she checked on periodically? I think, you know,
1: from our perspective, it very much comes to the fact that she was quite visibly an Aboriginal woman. Um, And, you know, through the inquest that was explored, like you said, through having systemic racism as part of the... Um, the process and looking at what that meant and how the treatment of um, um, occurred on that day because you have a look at it and it's public knowledge through the inquest process that on that same very night, there was a non-Aboriginal woman who had um, been identified as being drunk and rowdy at the local pub. Um, and she was subsequently picked up by the, the Castlemaine police but then taken to um, a family member's home. Um, and lodged with them, whereas mum was pulled off a train for sleeping um, and yes she was in the top of the head, but she was sleeping she wasn't unruly um, and then she was lodged in the cell so how distinct differences they are is that one was clearly an aboriginal woman and one was a non-aboriginal woman and the, the stark difference in how they were treated
0: absolutely and where this is two thousand and twenty one not not seven and eighty eight but obviously it could be construed as 1788 all over again, the way things are going, Belinda. Um, thank you so much for coming on to the program. It is There is a bright spot here that the public drunkenness um, was successfully debated. Is that right?
1: That's right, yeah. So in the last couple of weeks, that was debated through the lower and the upper house of the Victorian um, Parliament, and that's now passed. Um, as I mentioned before, we, we need to wait until, I believe it's November 2022, for the law to actually um, be taken off the books and that public health response, which they're still working on, um, to be implemented and ready to go to ensure that anybody that is found to be drunk in the public place is um, treated with a public health response, not um, elite—you le- know that, that legal response and put in a cell where it's not safe.
0: Thank you for coming on, Belinda. Take care of yourself and um, keep up the good work.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot.
0: And that was Belinda, daughter of Auntie Tanya Day, and she was speaking about um, Aboriginal women impacted by deaths in custody in the criminal justice system. and I just wanted to um, give a little bit of a note here to listeners that Auntie Tanya is the second member of the Day family to to die in custody. Uncle Harris also died in custody in June 1998. And now we've got uh, Tabitha up next. back with the Do Time show. And we're going to be speaking very shortly with Tabitha Leen and I'll have her speak about what land she's from in a, in a second. But before we do, and I did give a little a brief introduction on air at the beginning, Tabitha and I are going to be talking about the violence that Aboriginal women suffer within the system. And she sent me a really fantastic email um Looking at how how I need to introduce this, and we both talked about it, and so I just want to quickly talk about that. So, the violent the Aboriginal what violence that Aboriginal women suffer within the system, including community corrections via strip searching, over surveillance, etc., and how recent calls by feminists to criminalise coercive control could, in fact, not provide protection, and note that not provide protection to all as feminists suggest, rather place Aboriginal women more firmly within the realms of the criminal injustice system. Hello, Tabitha. Welcome to the program.
3: Hi, Marisa. Thank you for having me on.
0: It's lovely to have you. So just to put things in context, and could you just talk about what land you're from first?
3: Sure. I'm a Gunditjmara woman, born and raised on Ghana Yurta, and I'm calling in today from Ghana country that I'm totally honoured to be standing on, and I want to pay my respects to their Elders, past and present, for their ongoing custodianship of country.
0: It is really great to have you back, uh, Tabitha. You certainly kept me going during the lockdown. <laughs>
3: yeah, <but laughs> I'm glad that um, you know, people are sort of up and out of their homes now. It's been tricky for people.
0: Absolutely. So let's talk about what we were discussing off-air off air the other day and I was just saying, to just to set the scene, in regards to violence against women and, of course, we need to include institutional violence, don't we? Absolutely, absolutely.
3: And that's the, that's the thing at the moment. There's a lot of discussion about violence perpetrated against women's bodies in this country but very little attention is paid to the daily and ongoing violence perpetrated onto black women and children in the carceral system. And that speaks volumes about the disposability of human life
0: behind bars, really. Absolutely. And so what... Can you just explain further what you mean when you when you say that feminists suggest that um, there's protection for all as far as women are concerned who are incarcerated?
3: Yeah, sure. I'll I, I'll just like contextualise it a little bit so people know that I'm sure. speaking from a position of um, understanding. I have lived prison experience, having spent two years in Adelaide's prison for deviant women, and an accumulated two years on home detention, and remained tethered to the system on parole, or as I call it, open air prison. I've also um, been in violent relationships myself, and so I think that I come to this discussion with a little bit of expertise in this area. So I just wanted to ground it a little bit. I'm certainly not an expert, but I have some experience. Um, So right now we have a range of feminists and feminist organizations calling for the criminalizing of a form of violence called coercive control. And whilst coercive control, in my opinion, is fundamentally damaging to the woman who is being controlled, The call by white feminists to um, criminalise this, in my view, by creating this new offence, it firmly places women squarely within the domain of criminal justice. And let's face it, there are always and often deadly consequences for Aboriginal women accessing the law, despite carceral feminists believing that the intention of this law is to protect us it just fails to take into account what response women in violent relationships might want from a criminal justice system and what they might receive in reality. Because in my experience and the experience of many black women in this country, the more that criminal law tries to intervene on behalf of us, the more challenges it poses for us. That's Whether it's from contact with the police to having to front court to giving evidence in a trial, all of this creates hurdles and has the real potential to cause us harm. And added to that, how can we even trust the police with extended powers, which would actually rely on a high level of discretion, a keen eye to identify patent abuse, and basically a good theoretical and practical understanding of gender and family-based violence. As Aboriginal women, we can't rely on the police for that because our access to safety and justice is almost always irrevocably compromised by the police. So I just think that... What's being proposed at the moment, little thought has been given to alternatives to criminalisation. In this country and across the world, we rely on criminalising people and this criminal punishment system so much that we've internalised this pull to punishment. But I think we have to move towards imagining and creating a world that is free of exile and punishment because we know that what we're doing to people within the system is not producing contrite Rehabilitated individuals, but releases us damaged and finding it really difficult to find our place back in the world. So, so basically, even though that yeah. I've been a bit sorry, I've been a That's victim right. of this kind of violence. I yeah. just don't think that criminalising and, and putting people in jail helps the perpetrator, nor does it help the woman that might need to be, you know, phoning in for support
0: or safety. You are certainly correct on that, and it, it's. In my view, as a as a radio broadcaster and also as an activist, it's important to provide help for the perpetrators as well.
3: Absolutely, yeah. And look, I mean, I want to preface it by saying also that I'm I'm not saying that if someone's being coercively controlled that they should not call the police. That's entirely, you know, their of right course. and and may be the only access to safety that that person has. But my issue with what's being proposed by carceral feminists is that they they see that imprisonment is the primary solution to violence against women. But the reality is, you know, coercive control is a strategic form of ongoing oppression used to instill fear. And, like, we know that abusers use tactics like limiting access to money or monitoring communication, you know, all of these kind of controlling efforts. But the reality is, I am currently being coercively controlled by the state under the parole system. And where are all of these carceral feminists fighting for my liberation? They're not. And this over-reliance on the criminal injustice system does not protect everyone. Not every woman in this country can call the police and be safely responded to.
0: How would it be then if we could say, for example, that an Aboriginal woman or indeed uh, a migrant woman or any woman from an Mm. ethnic background, but we'll say Aboriginal women for the purposes of today because that's what today's show is about but let's uh, look at this scenario tabitha and let me let me let me know what you think of this so uh, imagine if an aboriginal woman um is being beaten by her partner then she uh, goes to call the police and the police in turn betray the aboriginal woman and and have racism towards her as well how does that sit with you because that could happen couldn't it
3: It happens now. In fact, um, one of our aunties was killed in custody literally for that. They called the police because their partner had breached a, a violence order. When the police arrived, they incarcerated her for having unpaid fines. And then she was subsequently killed in custody. So these imaginings that people think that Aboriginal women have about the violence and lack of safety that the police provide to our community are, w- are founded. In fact, this happens all the time to Aboriginal women. We call the police if we're if we are forced to, because that's the only option we have right now. And then we are in turn criminalised. And that's exactly what the, the criminalisation of coercive control could increase women's risk of being incarcerated, because that is the reality we face. It's the reality that we know that happens. And in Aboriginal communities, we try to... I mean, we've been doing abolition a long time. We do abolition in a way that we don't call the police on people, on our brothers, sisters or children, because we know that involving the police not only could result in that person being harmed, but us also. So, it, to me, it just... It smacks of real privilege, and unchecked privilege and arrogance to suggest that a black woman should trust the police in their most vulnerable moments. The same police agents of so-called laws order and safety who kill black men in their bedrooms. So when carceral feminists come out and they say that we should rely on policing, prosecution and imprisonment as a primary solution to violence against women, I think how can they ask me that when I know that the criminal justice system has deep racial flaws and it will not end violence in the home, but it will, tear at the seams of my community. Because not only does the police not protect the perpetrator of harm, they don't protect us as women either.
0: How can we create safer communities then without protecting the perpetrator?
3: Yeah, look, I think think we have to think to ourselves of what is the current system doing? The current system is not providing protection to either the person being violated or the perpetrator. So, I have to think, I think, how are we going to tr- transform this? Are we trying to make it so people don't harm each other? Are we trying to make it so that one person is incapacitated indefinitely? Like, what is the goal of what we're doing? And I think the goal is that we don't want anybody harmed again and we don't want anyone else to be abused or violated. So, then the job ahead of us is not to figure out how to incapacitate someone better, how to lock them up longer or harsher conditions. The job ahead of us is to figure out what are the conditions that lead to that person perpetrating harm. So I think it's about building a world based in mutual aid and radical, radical reciprocity. It's about finding local community solutions and approaches which prepare harm through accountability practices rather than punishment. That enables us to respond simultaneously to individual and systemic violence and we can transform communities and eradicate the structures that enable violence in its first place. I mean, fundamental to abolition is recalibrating our relationships with each other, with property, with state, and with, and with land and country. So it's about coming together as a community and thinking about ways of managing these these things and changing these institutions which produce people at harm. because the reality is we are not innately criminal people. We are not innately evil. Like, harm and criminality comes from some other place. It's why, you know, people are always talking about, even in sentencing, in trials, of all the the things that that person has gone through that have led them to, to that point of offending. Like, we can't separate people from that. And as members of community, we have to take some complicity in what is happening and the complicity in these systems and people who are harming. So I want us to love people beyond who we want them to be. I want us to focus on abundance and healing, not scarcity and harm. I want us to center community and I want us to shape life rather than support systems that take life. And all of that sounds really Pollyanna, I know. People are always saying that to me, like, what do you mean, like, just love people beyond who we want them to be or just love people more? But the reality is if we did love everyone and if we cared enough about our neighbor, our fellow community members, to know what's going on in their lives or know the things that they're experiencing that could lead them to perpetrate harm, then I think things could change. I think I think we could just be a much better and a happier sort of place than we are right now because at the moment all we do is we wait for people to harm and then we punish them. And what we do is yeah. we punish them and we, we perpetrate harm onto them. There's no you know, prevention.
0: Right? There's no, there's no, no prevention. early interventional prevention.
3: No, and there's no care. There's no care. What we see is someone who harms and we want to exile them and punish them while they're there. And then when they come back into community, they're not accepted as full citizens. They're not c- accepted as rehabilitated citizens. They go back they and do it again. A life- well, and they carry a lifetime of collateral consequences. I mean, myself as a criminalised woman, I've come back into community as a Sorry. contributing member of this community. Sorry, Tabitha, I just want to interrupt citizen.
0: there. When, when um, I said meant that I meant perpetrators go out and do it again, I didn't mean you. Yeah, yeah, no, no, okay. no,
3: but sure. But, yeah. but the reality is I'm also a perpetrator of crime. You know, I'm, i am I... I have a criminal record. I have perpetrated an offence of against society. Yeah. And this is the thing, is that when we bring people back into communities, that they exist as these kind of quasi-citizens with quasi-rights, and yes. even more so, they have these collateral consequences. So it's just not working for us. And what we know about people who commit these kinds of offences, including sex offences, is that they are put in prison with other people who have the same offences. So mm-hmm. all it does is strengthen their networks and their understandings of their criminality. It doesn't do anything to rehabilitate and support them to come out and heal and be contributing members of society. So I just, I think it's a really backwards way of working. And, you know, Aboriginal people within the system, every time that they're brought into the criminal punishment, they are at risk of being killed in custody. So to put a black man in prison for perpetrating violence, to me, all it does is tear at the seam of our community, the potential is that he will not come out alive. However, what we know is that Aboriginal people are not innately criminal. I mean, the delegates from the Uluru Statement from the Heart asserted that in their invitation to the Australian public. But what we know is that colonisation criminalises our people and it leads to this kind of offending. So I'd really like us to look at our society and our communities and the ongoing effects of colonisation and treat that rather than saying we will lock up anyone who coercively controls a woman.
0: It's very true, Tabitha, what you're saying. And it would be fantastic if we we could apply all this. And, And I think really at the heart of this, I'd just like to comment on the fact that elders have had all their supports taken away and... Really, Aboriginal law and work on cultural work on country has been severely destabilized Mm. over hundreds of years.
3: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. The ongoing dispossession of Aboriginal people from their country. I mean, even the fact that I sit here today on Ghana country, I'm really cognizant of the fact that. The fact that I sit here relies on the ongoing dispossession of Ghana people from their land. So I am an uninvited guest on this country too. Um, you know, I, I just think that we need to build communities which sustain life. Yes. And at the moment, that's not what we're doing. We're not emboldening community and families. We're emboldening cops and courts. And I think that safety, whether that's the individual family or community safety, cannot come without freedom and justice. Because who we are and what we are comes from the alchemy of our struggles. And if we dismantle systems that cage and punish, we can explicitly fight genocide and dispossession. And that's what we need in this country. And that's what Aboriginal people need. We need systems that encourage life and not take our lives. And um, every day that a black person is locked in a cage, whether they be a man, woman or child, it is taking from us and it's taking from our community. And we need
1: to change
0: that. We really do. And Tabitha, I'm just so happy that you came on. I've always enjoyed your company, and I've really enjoyed our conversations oh, um, after the last thank couple of, so over much. the last couple of years. And look, this has only just scratched the surface of a lot of the leadership work that you're doing. Um, and of course, we're going to be having you back regularly on the show when when you can. But we're nearing the end of the show. Are there any, are there any other final comments that you want to make about? International Women's Day. I mean, do you think that Aboriginal women are included in International Women's Day during their during that time?
3: Oh, absolutely not. I think that International Women's Day has been a, become a celebration of white women, and um, I, I laughed because this morning on Twitter I'd put out that I'm, my birthday is actually on International Women's Day, so I feel like I'm the black queen that International Women's Day women didn't even know they had or did they once. Um <laughs> but I I think what we're seeing across the country is panels being convened of white women to discuss women's issues for International Women's Day, and we're seeing a deliberate silencing and erasure of black women's voices in this country. And so I want to thank 3CR for elevating black women's voices and even more so to you, Marissa, for always elevating women with lived prison experiences voices because we are marginalised in this country and continue to be erased and silenced by the structures
0: that exist within it. So, yeah. I find easy, it yeah. an absolute... I find it an absolute offence for other people to speak up on peop- people's lived experience. It really... It, it really gets to me. And so I always make it my my mission. In every show that I do, I'm very, very conscious. If I have a topic, then I invite someone who's had lived experience. And of course... We do need lawyers though, Tabitha. Sometimes mm. it's important to have lawyers onto the show to talk Absolutely. about you know, topics as well, to, to support mm. them in, in, in an ally setting.
3: Absolutely. And I think, I think that's the other thing I would say is that to people who are being invited onto panels or things like that, if they look around and they don't see an Aboriginal woman or a person with lived experience of the actual topic being discussed, then they need to question whether they're the right person to be there. Now, they might well be at that point, but in my view, we should always share our platforms with the people who are being oppressed by the topic that we're actually discussing because we're all experts in our own oppression.
0: Tabitha, thank you so much for coming onto the program. You are an absolute legend, and I don't, I don't think we have time for your poetry today, but next no. time. <laughs>
3: thank you, Marissa, and thank you, Theresa
0: Thank you so much. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Tabitha. Um, speaking about a range of topics um, about her lived experience of domestic violence and other issues. And we're nearing the end of our show. Um, I'd like to say um, goodbye from Marissa and tune in every day, every week, sorry, every day is too much, every week um, from four to five on a Monday for the Do and Time show. And I hope you enjoyed the special broadcast um, about Aboriginal Women for International Women's Day. Stay safe.
4: On the streets. Oh, in